And what they found was that the outcomes for the group that were that the that were given permission to train within uh, appropriate boundaries of pain um, proceeded much much better. That triathlon show two hundred and nine. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. James Devenham. James is a clinician, a researcher, and a university lecturer at the University of Notre Dame in Western Australia. And we get into rehabilitation from injury, as well as how injuries develop and how to avoid them from developing in the first place. So it is a very information-packed episode. It is quite long. And uh, I honestly did not know that we we would go on for so long and that there was so much information to be told on this topic. But uh, I'm happy that we did get into all the details that we did, because as I said, it's dense, there's no fluff. It's only really, really good information. So we'll get right into that after thanking our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. They have a free hydration plan tab, and that is simply a 10-question quiz that you can take, and you will answer a set of questions qualitatively based on, for example, how white or how, how many salt stains do you get on things like your helmet straps and your clothes after training. And based on your answer to those questions, Precision Hydration have an algorithm that uh, will make an estimate for how much salt or sodium you lose in your sweat. And that will then inform a hydration strategy for your race. You end up filling in as well, whether you're training for a half or full or Olympic distance race and what sort of climate you're racing in and so on. So it really is a very simple way to get a really good handle on your hydration. I highly recommend going through that. And you can then try your first box or tube of Precision Hydration Electrolytes for free with the promo code Show, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. We are in Christmas gift shopping times already. If you have friends, family, loved ones, anybody that uh, you are looking for triathlon-related gifts to, I think that Roka is uh, a great place to stop and have a look because they have products in many different categories and they are all super high quality. Everything from wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, there's something in a range of product categories as well as in a range of different prices. So check them out and get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. Without any further ado, here's the interview with James Debenham. So James, welcome to That Triathlon Show. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, yourself, who you are and what you do so that the listeners uh, get uh, some context to this interview? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess first and foremost, um, I consider myself an endurance athlete. Um, I've been I've been doing triathlon now for quite a few years. Um, I probably favour the long course triathlon, and I'm reasonably good. Like over the over the years, I've I've raced in Kona a couple of times. I've never travelled the podium, but uh, but I generally kind of go okay at a local level. Um, 
but I'm a physio by background, and um, I did my undergraduate degree in, in London, but then I moved over to Perth in Western Australia uh, about 10 years ago to do a postgraduate degree, and that turned into a PhD, which I uh, I did on some biomechanical aspects of, of Achilles tendon injuries. Um, and I now uh, I'm now still working in Perth, um, my current job is an academic job principally, so I spend most of my time uh, teaching undergraduate students uh, at the University of Notre Dame down in Fremantle. Um, and I also have a research portfolio where I'm doing research myself and supervising research students. Um, I'm still in the clinic uh, one day a week, um, and I, I work at a clinic called Star Physio, uh, which is here in Perth. And we specialise, I suppose, we market ourselves and have, have a lot of interest in dealing with athletes uh, that, that have injuries related to endurance sports. So we spend a lot of time working with runners, triathletes, cyclists. And so that's uh, that's where I get to kind of still call myself a real clinical physio. And I guess the third string in my bow, which has happened, I guess, in the last sort of three or four years that's evolved from all of that, um, is I have started doing a little bit of coaching. I, I kind of call myself a reluctant coach, but people uh, people have sort of sought my help uh, for coaching, mostly for long course triathlon, uh, because I think a lot of us will discuss the uh, the principles that apply to you know rehabilitation of injuries are on that same continuum continuum for high performance. And so I have a I have a small stable of, uh, of pretty good athletes uh, as well at the moment uh, you better be careful there that's that's how it starts that's the gateway drug <laughs> yeah it's slippery slope right <laughs> yeah uh, i'm curious how do you find that the combination of mostly academic work but then still having that one day a week that you do get a clinical work do you find that the clinical work really helps you with the academic work or that they feed into each other somehow yeah, massively. Uh, and t- to be honest, uh, so I'm in the clinic on a Wednesday, which which is tomorrow. And and often when I'm heading to the clinic, I'm always I'm often thinking, oh, you know what? Um, I've got so many things to be doing at uni. I could probably be doing with not going into the clinic. Um, but then when I'm in the clinic with patients, um, it's so good in terms of driving my research questions and driving uh, sort of my teaching content. And I'd say as an academic, uh, you know, I, I was out of clinical practice whilst I did my PhD. And when I went back into clinical practice, I was actually astonished at how it enhanced both my research portfolio, asking really pertinent clinical questions, um, but also in terms of education. And when I'm chatting with the undergraduate students, there's so, so much power in me being able to say, um, you know, being able to say, oh, look, and here's a great example of a patient I saw in the clinic last week. Uh, the, the students really appreciate that. So, look, it's, it's challenging logistically, um, but it's certainly something that I, I have no intention of giving up. Yeah, that sounds sounds really good and uh, and a great way to to get uh, some additional input that you wouldn't have if you were just sitting and doing the theoretical stuff. So the first um, main topic that we have on the schedule for today is uh, around injury development, and uh, I guess what we can start with is uh, what would you say are the most important variables that impact on an injury developing, and and how what's the magnitude of those different variables. Yeah, sure. I think as we start to discuss this, it's probably important that we uh, we take a moment to to try and understand the the biology of, of our tissues and how they respond to loading. Uh, you know, and for, for athletes, we're talking about training there. So, 
if you go for a run or if you go to the gym and lift some weights, then you're providing a training stimulus to not only your cardiovascular system, but also to your musculoskeletal tissues. And what's really fascinating about these musculoskeletal tissues, and we're talking muscles, tendons, ligaments, and bone, even cartilage. What's really fascinating about these tissues is that they, they exhibit this phenomenon that is referred to as mechanotransduction. And you don't need to kind of remember that term, but what it's describing is this process by which when you expose your tissues to a loading stimulus, the cells within that tissue respond according to both the magnitude and the nature of that load. Um, and how you load those tissues over time will determine whether or not those tissues develop or adapt positively or negatively. So if you load them uh, in an appropriate way, they'll respond by getting stronger. If you don't give them any load, for example, if, you, if you're an astronaut and you go up into space and you remove all load from those tissues, they'll respond by getting weaker. And if you overload those tissues by repeatedly exposing them to load without giving them the opportunity to recover, then they will gradually break down. And that's how we see most injuries develop. And I think it's really important as we understand how particularly overuse injuries, which are the predominant injuries within endurance sport, that it's this mechanotransduction which, which is so important. And, and it hinges on this process of, of protein turnover. So all of these tissues, the predominant structural uh, property of them is, is protein. And the training stimulus is what it's about is it's stimulating events such that protein is broken down, the tissue's broken down, but there's also protein synthesis. And we're looking for a training stimulus that results in net protein synthesis. And what I mean by that is after you've done that training stimulus, the tissue ends up just a little bit stronger than that. And we can take this one step further by thinking about how different tissues have a different time frame attached to how they respond. So, for instance, if I go out for a run uh, and I load, you know, a bunch of things, but let's say my Achilles tendon, then what we know is that that mechanotransductive process takes about 72 hours, two to three days, depending on how, how, how hard you run. And what's important to realize is that um, – in that 72-hour period, at the end of that period, the tissue will be just fractionally stronger. But what we really need to understand is that there is a period of time that peaks at about 24 hours, for tendon this is, where the tissue is actually weaker than before you gave it that training stimulus. And so this is really interesting because it underpins one of our well-known training principles is that you wouldn't back up hard training sessions day after day. You wouldn't do a hard track session and then do a hard phalanx session the following day because intuitively we know that this is an increased risk of injury but it has has extra we, we get extra understanding by knowing that it actually relates to how the tissue responds to load and sort of the final thing with this in terms of how the biology of the tissue is that where tendons take about 72 hours, it's different for other tissues. So, for instance, bone is even slower. It's probably about a five-day process for bone to respond positively to load. And muscle is probably the best, depending on what you do to that muscle, be it going for a run or lifting weights. You're probably looking at about two days there for that tissue to respond. 
So I, I think it's important to, to have this understanding that, that our tissues biologically respond to load based on what we do to them. And then if we understand that, we can then look at it in two ways in terms of who's at risk of getting injury or what are the factors that will lead to you potentially getting injured. And, and if you look at the literature on this, um, it kind of divides the risk factors in two. Um, one of the risk factors are, are those factors that influence um, how the tissue is loaded. And this relates to training, and I, I can comment on that in a moment. And the other thing is factors that influence that tissue's ability to tolerate load, so how strong that tissue actually is. And so when it comes to the factors that influence tissue loading, what we're looking at is the things that we do in our everyday training. And I think the number one thing uh, that relates to this, particularly as it relates to running, is intensity. And so hard running, as opposed to, say, easy running, the peak loads that we see going through the tissues are just so much higher that uh, the stress that is placed on those tissues um, is, is so much significantly elevated. So intensity seems to be the biggest risk factor. And it's not that you shouldn't do intensity, not by any stretch of the imagination, but you do need to manage that intensity sensibly relative to what you're capable of. Um, the other thing that can I can I jump in here with with a follow up question yeah. on intensity? Is the the relation between the the load uh, the 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 load versus intensity is that sort of an exponential relationship or is it linear? Uh, if you know what I mean, like if you're running via two max intervals, is it really a, a big difference compared to running threshold intervals? Just because the faster you go it's an exponential uh, increase in, in the actual load experienced by the tissue. Yeah, I, I, I actually don't know the answer to that. My best guess is that it would be exponential. And the, but the way I conceptualize sort of this concept, certainly from a, from a practical perspective, is, is it's mediated. We, we understand that it's mediated by fatigue. So whether you're doing threshold intervals or VO2 max intervals, I think is probably less important than how many of them or how much that workload is relative to your capacity. So if you're always, if you're ever so slightly underdosed, and then you know that those principles that you, you know, always leave a rep in the tank or always leave a set in the tank, that's probably the most important factor. Because as the tissues fatigue, what we know, say, with, uh, with tendon tissue, if you, if you look microscopically at the tissue, it's kind of in a, it, it, it's, it looks a bit like a spring. And as you do those efforts, that spring kind of uncoils ever so slightly. And as you fatigue, you remove all that elasticity from the tissue. So whether it's exponential or linear, I'm not so sure. But I think I, I operationalize it with this threshold of, um, you know, of relative to fatigue, which seems to be the really important thing for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, and the practical takeaway there is uh, following the principle of, of leaving a rep or two left in the tank when you do intensity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the patients that I see, you often, when you when you explain these principles to them, they'll often have this light bulb moment. They'll be like, oh, you know what it was? I did this. You know, it's it's the, you know, it's the group run that gets a little bit aggressive and gets a bit competitive. And there's there's a level of intensity that uh, that maybe wasn't intended going into it, but it inadvertently happened. 
Okay, yeah, perfect. So, uh, yeah, jump. Uh, please jump back into where I, I oh. cut you off with the second aspect you were going to to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, no worries. Um, the other, I suppose, the other big factor that uh, that is a risk factor um, or a protective factor, depending on how you look at it, is volume of training. And this is really interesting because what we know is that um, volume is certainly volume of training is certainly a risk factor for injury. Um, so the more, but it, but it's not an absolute value. It's it's relative to your own capacity. So whilst excessive volume is a risk factor. What we also know is that if you have progressively built up your volume such in a, in a consistent and conservative way over a long period of time, that volume ceases to become a risk factor and actually becomes protective, which is why we see athletes that have trained consistently um, for such a long period of time often are the ones that are least likely to get injured. And so it's not so much the volume of the workload, but how you find yourself getting there. And so a term I find myself commonly using is is a spike in workload. So maybe you're training at whatever level is appropriate for you, but then for whatever reason, um, you up that volume significantly in the absence of changes in intensity or anything else, but a, a, a hefty rise in volume over a short period of time, that then becomes the risk factor. Yeah, that makes, um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so they're the, sort of the two main things. There are some other things, but they're the, they're the two main things that, that will sort of influence how the tissue is loaded. If we look at it from the other side of things, we need to say, well, look, okay, we need to load the tissue and we need to load it appropriately. But everybody is different and everyone's tissues um, are slightly different. And so what are the factors that influence how strong this tissue is and capable of tolerating that load that we place upon it? And probably the two things uh, that are front and center are both an individual's training history, um, but also their injury history. And these sort of two things go hand in hand and touch back on the, the volume comment that I made earlier. So someone who has a very long, consistent training history is going to be protected and is likely to have very strong tissues unlike someone that is new to the sport or maybe progressing at a rapid rate, they're going to be at much greater risk because their tissues haven't developed that resilience over time. Um, and that will be compounded by an injury history. So if you've had an injury, particularly if the injury was chronic or recurrent or hasn't been rehabilitated effectively, um, then it's likely that that tissue doesn't have the same capacity that we would like it to have. So that is going to place it at risk. Um, so that's sort of, you know, things that are related to, to, to the historical events. Um, but then there's a load of other things that I think are really interesting that perhaps people don't immediately think of. Um, so if we look at um, the strength of an individual, this is emerging as a really important factor for protecting tissues. Um, so we think often of muscle strength um, as uh, as the thing that makes us move and makes us race quickly. But what, what, what's been emerging in the literature recently and that I've been a part of is that actually muscles have this ability to protect the tissues that they're attached to. And this can be conceptually a little bit hard to get your head around. But if, I mean, I, I, I've done most of my studies with the Achilles tendon and what we know is that if the calf muscles, the, the plantar flexor muscles are attached to the Achilles tendon, 
And it seems that if your calf muscles are stronger and they have more tissue in them, then they can absorb some of the load that will otherwise be going through that tendon itself. Um, so it can serve this kind of protective element. So I think that's that's a really interesting concept to sort of have our heads around. And that's not just tendons. That that happens um, at joints, certainly at the, at the knee and the hip, uh, the spine spine and the shoulder as well. So really all our joints seem to be protected by muscles. Um, another interesting factor that relates to, to tissue capacity is actually, uh, is actually body fat. Um, and this, this really interests me because historically and intuitively, um, people have often said, oh, well, if you're carrying a bit too much weight, well, that's going to load your tissues a bit more and you're more likely get, to get injured. But actually, we know that there's a lot of pretty big people running around not getting injured. And some research has emerged in recent years that has actually sort of flipped this idea on its head and says that, look, the, the being overweight does seem to be an issue. But actually, what the problem might be is that the body fat confers a systemic inflammatory effect. So having too much body fat uh, within you, what that does is it elevates the inflammatory uh, chemicals that are circulating around your body, meaning that when you load your tissues, they're more inclined to break down. Now, that's a gross oversimplification, but I think it's interesting how body fat can have this systemic effect. Um, so that's something kind of to be mindful of. Um, and the final thing that goes uh, with the things that will influence your tissue's capacity to, to tolerate load um, relates to nutrition. Um, we know that when we apply a training stimulus, um, we have this protein turnover, and that is dependent on the right fuels being delivered to the body. So firstly, there needs to be sufficient caloric intake to, uh, to fuel those workouts and, and also stave off fatigue. Um, but one of the other factors that I think is, is often missed is the importance of adequate protein in the diet. Uh, and certainly, and, and I don't think this has ex been explored that much experimentally, certainly not within, um, not within endurance sport and certainly not triathlon. Um, but protein intake, uh, there's, there's so much intuitive sense. That if your tissues are made of protein and their recovery and health is governed by this, this mechanical property, then having adequate protein seems to be really important. And I think certainly as I understand the numbers, um, protein intake is rarely adequate for endurance athletes. And so that's something I found, uh, I found to be quite interesting. It is indeed. It's there's so much there that's uh, that's super interesting in in this entire segment that you <laughs> just went through. But but with uh, regard to protein, um, so the numbers uh, off the top of my head, based on on the literature, is uh, recommended to be in let's say one point two to one point eight grams per kilogram body weight for most endurance athletes, at least training at the level of of age group athletes. Yeah. But then when we look at what the top practitioners in the field are actually saying and what they are recommending anecdotally, many of them would advise people to go much higher than that to be at two to three grams per uh, per kilogram body weight. And uh, and three grams per kilogram body weight, that, that's a massive amount. That's uh, almost uh, bodybuilding quantities. But uh, that's what I think there, we see a shift there in what the best practitioners are advising and that we are just on the verge of realizing 
interesting how important protein is also for endurance athletes and that's as you say something that has been underestimated yeah i look i totally agree with everything you say there uh, th- those numbers to, to my understanding are absolutely accurate and and everyone i deal with i i reckon two grams per kilogram as a bare minimum and uh, and yeah up to three i think is fantastic and like you say when you actually when you actually break that down and see what you have to consume in order to meet those requirements day to day week to week month to month it's a huge amount of protein and uh and most you know most people who are who i advise on this subject i think it's very difficult to get adequate protein without supplementing and so that's something that i think is a is a real easy take home to to you know to add in add into the mix there so yeah i totally agree with you and one thing that I wanted to ask about, and maybe you were already uh, planning on on covering this, but does the type of or what different does the type of loading uh, make in terms of injury risk? And I'm thinking about uh, concentric versus eccentric loading, but also uh, the different disciplines, the load from, from which obviously has both compared to cycling and swimming, for example. Yeah, that's a good question. So, from a uh, if we look at the concentric versus eccentric, from an injury risk perspective, I don't think there's much to that. Um, whether you're, you know, if you're doing resistance training, um, the peak loads are relatively low when you're lifting weights and so that doesn't seem to be too much of an issue if we're talking about the the dosages that you're going to be talking that an endurance athlete is going to be uh going to be undertaking so we're not talking the power training and we're not talking sort of bodybuilding type training um but um from a running perspective where the injuries are most prevalent the the issue relates not so much to um well, it, the key thing is peak loading. So if you think about this, when you're if, if you're stood on your two feet and you've got half your body weight going through each foot as it hits the ground, if we think of it in terms of physics, um, when you start running, depending on on how you run, those loads going through your lower limbs can get up to eight to twelve times your body weight. And what we see happen is the moment you start running, there's a shift in the mechanical, in the mechanics of how much of the peak load that's going through your tissues. So I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's not just the, the quantity of load that's going through the system, but it's also those peak loads, uh, that I think is really important. And that's why, you know, running, I think is such a, is such a sort of problematic discipline, um, as it relates to cycling, um, I think and looking what a couple of my colleagues at the clinic they spend a lot of time doing uh, doing bike fitting and, and and they're the experts on this subject. And what we often see as we work together is that there's more of a load adaptation situation going on, particularly with time trial positions. So to give an example, you might have someone who they're set up in in, in an aerodynamic position on their on their TT bike, but they're getting low back pain. Now you can optimize that position in order to reduce the load that's going through, say their lower back. But often what you need is a period of adaptation progressively spending more and more time in that aerodynamic position so that the tissues can develop capacity in a similar way to just holding that position for a period of time. And the same can be true. You know, the the pain that you can get in your neck or in your shoulders from that TT position, it may be that there are some positioning modifications that can be made. But often just 
being mindful of the dosing and spending increasing times of, uh, in that aerodynamic position, for example, um, is often the solution to give those tissues a chance to to adapt. So when someone says to me, oh, look, I've got this new bike or I've got, I just had a fit and it feels really uncomfortable, as long as there's nothing ridiculous going on with that fit, I don't have a problem with saying, hey, look, just give this a bit of time. We know that it takes weeks for these tissues to adapt. So just give your body the chance to adapt to that position. So that that's the thing I most commonly observe, um, certainly with the cycling side of things. All right. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. So in terms of uh, practical aspects of uh, actually managing the risk of injury, obviously we've already touched upon them and uh, throughout this discussion with, for example, progression of volume and uh, not being mindful with how much intensity and how frequently you do intensity and so on. But can we just uh, summarize the different things that people can do to minimize their risk of injury, whether it's training variables or variables outside of training that we're, uh, we're working yeah, with? Yeah, sure. I think uh, we can summarize this, I suppose, with with three uh, key areas that we can work on. So area number one is to be manipulating training variables appropriately. And that's where having a good coach and, and a really good relationship with your coach is so valuable because your coach should be well in tune with what your capacities are. So I think that's job job number one. And these things can all occur concurrently. I think the second thing that, and there's good there's good data to support this, is that a an appropriate strength training uh, program that's uh, that's integrated within your global training program, I think, is really important. and And I can talk about uh, you know some important aspects of that if you like. But that's the second thing I think is really important. And then the third aspect, sort of in summary, are, you know, let's call it the lifestyle issues. And this relates to recovery, especially sleep, which I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners will, you know, won't underestimate the importance of that, even if most of us have a bit of difficulty in applying it consistently. So recovery and sleep um, and nutrition as well, as we've already discussed. So I think they're, they're the three things. I reckon if you, can, if you can tick all of those boxes, you're giving yourself a really good chance of staying staying healthy and staying uninjured. Yeah, let's dive into strength training there. That's uh, a really good lead into that. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's cool. Um, so I guess it's going to be a little bit different whether you're looking at it through the lens of prevention and optimizing performance versus whether you're not you're applying it to recovering from an injury. So if seeing as we're talking about sort of mitigating risk, I'll talk about it through the, you know, let's take an athlete who they, they want to engage in resistance training because they want to optimize performance and they want to minimize their risk of getting injury, uh, getting injured. So I think where I would start this and where, where I think most value comes from is, is prioritizing um, what, what can be termed heavy compound lifting. Um, so these, these are, for example, deadlifts and squats and for the upper body, any compound push such as a barbell shoulder press um, and a compound pull, whether it's a lateral pull down um, or, or a chin up or a seated row. So these are exercises that the nature of them, they're working multiple groups of muscles at the same time in functional synergies in ways that you're going to be using them athletically. So I think that's the that's the first thing I'd say that any program should be centered around those key lifts. 
shifts. Uh, I think that's really important. Um, if you're going to do any isolation exercises, my opinion um, is that I would have a bias towards the posterior chain. Um, and, and if anyone's uncertain what we mean by the posterior chain, it's a slightly nebulous term, but it's referring to all the muscles that run down the back of your body. And so these would be your spinal extensors, your your gluteals, particularly your hip extensors, uh, your hamstrings and your calf muscles. So if you think of that as sort of a, a, a continuum of muscles, we're paying additional attention to those muscles, I think, has additional value for uh, for triathletes um, because, one, many of us have sedentary jobs and we spend a lot of time sitting, um, and, two, we spend a lot of time hunched over a bike. And that elongated position probably doesn't optimize uh, the the positioning of those muscles. And, and certainly clinically, I, I often see weakness through that posterior chain as a, as a common manifestation. So I'd be doing compound lifts firstly, and then I'd be biasing any additional stuff to the to the posterior to the posterior chain. Um, and I think so once we've got those exercises in place, I think the next challenging thing and, and challenging for a lot of athletes is getting the dose right. And I think this is where 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 we've got a lot of room to improve as certainly Certainly in the clinical world as physios, uh, we're getting better at this, but we're not perfect. If you think about when you when you go into the gym and you want to get stronger, um, we want to provide an optimal stimulus to promote muscle adaptation and get those muscles stronger. And there's a lot of research that's been done in this space, and it's pretty clear that in order to achieve this, we need to lift heavy. Um, and what I mean by that is um, often people say, well, how many reps should I do? Should I be doing 15 reps or should I be doing 10 reps or should I be doing a different amount of reps? And what seems to be the most important thing is that however many reps you do in one of these sets, you're getting pretty close if not quite to failure, i.e. to the point where even if you had a gun held to your head, you could not do another rep. The ideal probably being about one to two reps shy of failure. And this is actually really, really hard work. And I think because uh, true strength training is quite unfamiliar to a lot of endurance athletes, hitting these dosages um, can be quite daunting, can be can induce a bit of anxiety. But I think it's what we need to be aware of is building up to those levels to actually get that intensity through the muscles is critical to promote that positive adaptation. So I think that's the final kind of ingredient to to an effective resistance training program. Um, you know, those compound lifts, perhaps with a bias towards the posterior chain and dosed really appropriately so that you're, so that you're lifting heavy, heavy weights. Yeah, that makes uh, absolute uh, perfect sense to me. And uh, I totally agree with all of that. I think with regard to the the heavy lifting, as you mentioned, and uh, that being unfamiliar territory for many endurance athletes, one very common mistake that I see, and uh, I think that you probably see it as well, is that we're endurance athletes, so we are very impatient and want to get going with the next set immediately. And that's why we never quite get to those levels of as heavy 
of lifting as we probably should be doing to to get the maximum adaptations that we're we're after so slowing down in the recovery between sets would be my piece of advice to to reach those uh, those loads yeah look and it was remiss of me not to mention that I, I, you're absolutely right uh i mean the numbers that i use I'm, I'm sure you're probably similar would be uh you know if you're lifting heavy you need a minimum of two minutes rest between sets possibly more i default to two to three minutes and if you if you're lifting heavy enough you absolutely need those two to three minutes um, in order to fully recover so that you can go again and and we know that that rest is a really important ingredient and so some people kind of say well look that means i'm going to be in the gym kind of for hours at a time and there's just not enough time in the day but this circles back around to the value of these compound exercises, that if you're prioritizing compound exercises, such are their potency that you might only need to be doing two, three, or maximum four exercises in a gym session. And yeah, you might be spending a lot of that time sitting there not doing anything, but that's just the nature of doing this correctly. And I think you're absolutely right that conceptually, this is a really challenging mind shift for uh, for endurance athletes that just want to go and keep going and go harder and not rest uh, you're absolutely right i reckon so let's move into the other main topic that we have which is uh, rehabilitation from injuries so uh, can you just uh, get into a discussion on on that from wherever you want to start it yeah, sure. Um, so, so let's say you you find yourself and you've had an injury, and you're sort of looking at, at getting yourself out of that uh, out of that hole. Um, what's important to know is that the fundamental principles are really no difference. If you think of um, injury, uh, good health, and high performance all existing on the same continuum. And the only difference really in terms of how you apply those principles is in the dosage. And um, I'm sure you're familiar with that idea of of minimum effective dose and maximum recoverable volume. And, And these two terms kind of relate to you want to stimulate the body well enough uh, to have positive adaptations, but no more than what the body can sort of fully recover from. And I find myself talking about uh, this as a bit of a Goldilocks zone. You know, you want it to be just right, just in the middle. And the problem that we have in a rehab setting, and I think where having a good physio comes in and where it can be really difficult to self-manage is that when you have an injury, particularly if that injury has been chronic or recurrent and you've never and you've not fully recovered from it, that Goldilocks zone shrinks to a really, really small window. And unless you're loading consistently within that window, it can be very difficult to escape that sort of injury, uh, that injury cycle. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, so if we if we look at say load management for instance, there's probably an additional concept that I think is really important to get across to the listeners, um, and that's this idea of what do I do if I'm in pain? Um, because quite often with with a lot of these um, sort of chronic injuries or overuse injuries, um, the pain is there for you know for a lot of the time and, and a lot of that rehab journey, and. Um, and there was this research study that was done about 10 years or so ago by, by some researchers in the States. And they, they, took, um, they took a group of people with Achilles tendon pain. These were runners with Achilles tendon pain. And they split them into two groups, 
one of the groups, they said, um, right, we don't want you to experience any pain. Uh, if you feel any pain, you shouldn't be doing any exercise. You shouldn't be doing any training. Um, and we want you to progress but limit yourself to having no pain. And with the other group, they said, all right, we're going to allow you to experience a little bit of pain. And they, and, and they scaled this appropriately. So they, they, if you think of that pain scale going from zero being no pain at all and 10 being the worst pain you can imagine, they said, look, we're happy for you to continue your exercise and continue your training as long as that pain doesn't exceed four out of 10. Okay. And so they said, if you train as long as during that training session, and then after that training session, the pain doesn't exceed four out of 10, then go ahead and continue. And what they found was that the outcomes for the group that were, that, the, that were given permission to train within uh, appropriate boundaries of pain um, proceeded much, much better. And what this does, and I call this the four out of 10 rule when I'm talking to, to students or patients, like by understanding this four out of 10 rule, what it does is it gives you permission and it gives you autonomy to say, okay, look, I've got control of this situation again. Um, having some pain is actually okay. It's there to give me a warning about what I perhaps should and shouldn't do and where I should be careful. But um, as long as I'm within those boundaries, I can be loading myself uh, I can be loading myself progressively, um, and that's a really and that's a really nice kind of way to um, to be starting off. Sort of saying saying to patients, here's here's a good way that we can introduce your training straight away. Yeah, that that's something that I've been hearing and uh, hearing from from good uh, physiotherapists and practitioners that uh, that the field is moving towards this and the the. Practitioners that stay up to date with the field, they more and more go towards this model of allowing this sort of four out of ten pain. So, so it aligns very well with with what I've heard as well. So, uh, really interesting or and uh, good to hear confirmation uh, from you about about that. So, how how do we in practice go about it? Let's say we're a runner, we have a chronic injury of some sort. Do we go out and run? And if we have pain from the first step, as long as it's four out of 10 or less, we just keep running. Should we still limit the volume of that run somehow? Can you elaborate on the volume and intensity progression sort of? Yeah, sure. Um, so I kind of take this laid approach, if you like, that sort of speaks to all of the things that you mentioned. Very rarely um, will an injury um, require absolute rest. And now look, there are occasions where that will happen if you've had acute trauma. So, so let's say, you know, you've, you've pulled a calf muscle or you've sprained a ligament, for example, if you've had acute trauma, then that does need to be rested. So that's, that's a sort of, that acute phase does need to be respected. Um, when we get into this rehabilitation phase, we're at the point where the patient can run, even if it's just a few steps, um, without excessive pain. Having some discomforts, absolutely fine, as we've discussed. Um, and they may not be able to do much, but they just need to be able to do something. And this typically is the entry point uh, to to their rehab. And so the first thing that I want to uh, that I want to establish with my patient with my patient my athlete is to get 
consistency with loading. Because if we go back to that principle of mechanotransduction, we need to expose the tissue to a dose of loading that is appropriate for it at the time and then give it ample chance to recover. So we know from the biology of tissues that if if we're loading it perhaps twice three times a week, depending on what the tissue involved is, we know that we're giving it adequate chance to recover and for that protein synthesis to take place. And we've got this systems check every day by this pain monitoring model, this four out of 10 rule. So we're looking in this first stage, we're going to say, look, uh, and, and I'll give some examples in a moment. We're going to say, let's give you a dose of running because um, it's invariably running where we apply this. And we're going to do this two to three times a week. And we're going to scale back the volume such that we don't break this eight out of 10 rule. And so, for example, this, this often with, with, with particularly chronic uh, injuries, this may be as little as doing 10 rounds of 30 seconds, very easy jogging, followed by 60 seconds of walking. Very rarely would someone not be capable of doing that without aggravating the 4 out of 10 rule. Um, If they do, then there's probably something else going on that needs to be attended to. But I'll, I'll say to my patients, look, if we can get you doing that, if we can get you doing two or three times a week for a couple of weeks, if your tissues can consistently do that without being aggravated, then we're almost home and dry because we've got some traction. We know that the tissue is now absorbing that load. We know that it will be responding favorably and we can build from there. It's a very simple plan. It's not easy because it requires a huge amount of patience, particularly for those chronic injuries. But um, but we know that if we if we can put those principles of loading in place, we know the outcome will be uh, will be will will be good. Um, And so we'll scale back volume as much as we need to. And at this point, hopefully it goes without saying that there's really no place for intensity here. Um, The load that you're just going to get from a simple run will be more than sufficient to stimulate that protein synthesis and positive adaptation. So our objective at the moment isn't about getting fitter. It's about developing capacity within our tissues in order to be able to run um, when we're talking about running. Um, in terms of intensity, I've, I've listened with great interest sort of uh, in recent times that you've, you've had lots of experts talking about intensity and, 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 and I, I agree with it wholeheartedly and, and, and I often – and I mention it because I often have to have conversations with athletes – about what that definition of low intensity is, um, because uh, as I'm sure as I'm sure you can appreciate, um, our definition, certainly my definition of low intensity as a clinician and as a coach, is very different to what most people's uh, or a lot of people's, and certainly a lot of injured people's definitions of. Uh, of, of low intensity is. And I can certainly give you some examples about how I operationalize that, if you'd like. Yes, please uh, do. Um, yeah, so for um, I really like uh, I really like heart rate um, as a uh, as a metric for intensity, and so athletes that are that are that are well experienced with their own heart rate and they know what their max heart rate is. Um, I'll generally put that ceiling at you know if you're using a three zone model, you know at the upper limit of, of zone one or, or say seventy five percent of their max heart rate. Um, for people that perhaps 
don't know what their maximum heart rate is, um, it would certainly be inappropriate to test their maximum heart rate. That would be a recipe for disaster. Um, I don't actually have a problem with using with using the math method. So taking 180 minus their age, it's very very crude and and and, and not useful for many things. But I think it's a simple guide for a lot of, a lot of athletes. A lot of athletes uh, do pin me down on a pace, particularly for running, and are often staggered by how slow I ask them to run. And so, just as a guide, um, you know, if you're if you're uh, uh, an average runner, which I know that's difficult to, difficult to, to describe, you know, I think six minute per kilometer pace is is totally appropriate. Um, but probably more interesting, even with the elite runners that I work with, I'll be recommending they do their runs at about 5.30 pace. There's limited value in running quicker, um, and there's lots of risk with uh, with going faster than that. I could compromise to go as quick as 5.15 pace, but I certainly don't think at this point in time anyone's got any business running quicker than five-minute pace. And that's often quite a confronting thing uh, for, for athletes and patients to get their head around. But when just, you just remind... Quick, just a quick note there for American listeners that uh, and anybody working in miles, eight minutes per kilometer would be... Uh, sorry, five minutes per kilometer would be eight minutes per mile. So... 8 or 5:30 that you mentioned that's something like 8:45 per mile to to give some reference yeah great thanks for that michael yeah that's uh, I'm, i always have trouble with i always have trouble with that one um so so yeah and i think the key thing is is just uh, educating the the athlete that the objective of this phase of their rehabilitation is not to get fitter it's not to get quicker it's to develop the capacity such that they can in the future do their training which they currently can't yeah, that, that that's a, a perfect reminder of the mindset shift that we have to make. And one thing that you said earlier there with uh, 30 seconds jogging and 60 seconds of running, uh, walking, that reminded me of uh, the mindset shift that I had to make when, when I was injured and work, work, working with a physiotherapist. And, uh, and she had me do just that type of uh, walk run. And she said, you're not going to run. You're not going to do a run walk. You're going to do a walk run. So... And that mm. helped with the mindset shift of uh, really getting the perspective that this is not a run walk, this is a walk run. So I better walk more than I run in, in this phase of rehabilitation. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think a lot of athletes they they have this they have this image in their mind of themselves as the as the best version of themselves of the of the athlete that they want to be and that they perhaps used to be. And I think it's it's really psychologically challenging to accept where you are on that journey. And 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 I think given that a lot of these injuries can be so chronic, um, it's getting that frequency I find is often a really useful, uh, a really useful tool. You know, you say, look, if you can, I, I, I'm often patients will say to me, they're like, Oh, I think I, I was expecting you to tell me that I wasn't going to be able to run ever again. And my response is that's the last thing that you should be doing is giving up running. Running is the solution to your running problem. And, and once you give them back that frequency, you say, Hey, look, you're not running much, but you're running a lot more than you used to, even though it is highly diluted and and it's amazing that as you start progressing the volume, um, you may progress really quickly, and it becomes really satisfying as the, as, as the athlete sort of sees that progress. So, can you give some uh, some more examples for the the actual progression of frequency of runs? You mentioned starting out at two or three walk runs per week, and then and they might be as simple as 
30 seconds of of jogging 60 seconds of walking but how quickly can we then ramp up to add uh, another run per week and uh, at what point might we be doing continuous runs just uh, some examples and obviously everybody's going to be an individual and need to work with their physiotherapist but to to give uh, some idea of what we might see yeah, sure. Um, and I think the, the big mediator for this is, as we enter this is really the chronicity of the injury. So how long has someone had the injury? So someone who has, has, has had an injury that, that's really developed only in, in a couple of weeks, they'll progress through this almost instantaneously. If someone's had an injury for months or often years, it's going to be much longer than that. And so having your mind a time frame that is at least the equivalent of the length of time that you've had that injury in terms of how we'll go through this progression. So just if the listeners want to kind of calibrate that to maybe perhaps their own experiences. Um, so let's say we're starting at the, at, the, at the start of the line and we're doing those 30 seconds of easy jogging followed by 60 seconds of walking. Um, and we might do that sort of 10 times, 10 times through. Um, and, and that would be, and I'd be happy to do that for most people, unless it's a, unless it's a stress fracture, which I do twice a week, I would always default, uh, to three times a week, uh, on non-consecutive days for, for all, for almost all injuries. So I'd start by building up those increments. I'd, I'd be going, uh, you know, walk, run, as, as you nicely describe, turning that into a run, walk. And I'd be looking to get someone to up to the point where they're within a 30-minute 30, 30 outing, they're doing five minutes of jogging interspersed with one minute of rest. That seems to be a threshold by which we can start thinking about genuine consistent running or rather continuous running and i would be but prior to getting to that point i'm probably going to build the volume every uh, two weeks ideally if my if, if i can if i can get away with it because I'm th- i've then got two weeks of data points by which i can review with with my patient and if they come in and they say i've done you know i've done two weeks of running i've done six runs and i've not had any ill effects at that dose i can then, then be very confident that we can incrementally up that volume so, so do you, i do, do that general- yeah sorry go on I was gonna. I was gonna say so, and I'm, I'll incrementally build that up. Uh, you know, to about five minutes on, one minute off, as as, as a rough idea. Um, depending on the athlete, then I go through this phase where if I, if I, depending on <laughs> depending on how well I trust the athlete, I might then continue to constrain those numbers and go six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes with one minute of walking. But what I like to do with a lot of athletes, if, if they've been well-educated and they've, and they've really uh, embraced the kind of principles that, that we've embedded and, and they're, they're getting the positive feedback of having these, these low-pain runs, I'll often give them what I, what I would refer to as a discretionary run. And I'd say, hey, look, you're doing over 30 minutes of total running now. Or you're doing about 30 minutes of total running now. Go out, and I don't want you to run 30 minutes continuously straight away. But just go out and just run until there's a natural break. Maybe you find some traffic lights or maybe you need to stop and take a drink from a fountain. But just make sure you're interspersing a a, a one-minute walk or a one-minute rest from time to time as it's convenient. But let's try to make this a little bit more natural. And, And I'll normally say to them, let's do this for a month and have the objective that over a four-week period, you're going from a handful of one-minute walks just scattered within those runs to the point where you're consistently able to run that continuous 
30 minutes. And I, and, and then I say to my patients, look, and then we're at this really important and exciting threshold. I, I would like to then go through a four-week period. And, and again, we've got to, we've got to take, take the timeframes with a slight pinch of salt because everyone is individual, as you say. But if, if, a, if, if an athlete can give me four weeks of three 30-minute runs on non-consecutive days without any aggravation of their symptoms, then that's the point that I say to them, look, you're no longer a patient. You're now an athlete again. And that's a really important threshold to sort of take that athlete over. And at that point, I would then be progressing based on some slightly different rules, which which I'm happy to sort of expand on a little bit. Um, but they're really no different to the rules that we would use if we were trying to build volume or intensity in uh, in an athlete that was uninjured. I think the only difference would be I'm always going to prioritize volume over intensity, and I would look to be building those three 30-minute runs, which gives me a weekly volume of 90 minutes. I'm going to be using that total weekly volume as my kind of metric of interest, and I'll be building that up to a level that is appropriate for that individual. And that's going to be very variable based on their training history and based on what their goals, you know, the, the, the recreational sprint athlete versus the elite Ironman athlete, for example. But probably what's important as a, as a guide for your listeners who, who are maybe trying to integrate this themselves is I would, uh, as a guide, I would generally add no more than 15 minutes in total of running for any given week. That would be the maximum. So if you're running 90 minutes one week, that would then go up to, you know, what, one hour and 45 minutes the following week. And that would be an absolute maximum for me. Um, and there's plenty of times where I'll incrementally add 15 minutes on a on a two, three, or four weekly basis, depending on who the individual is. And I guess the idea here is 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 this consistent, conservative approach to building volume, which is so important. And the reality is, and what we need to remind our athletes of, is this just can't happen overnight. It's not we'd love to be able to click our fingers and, 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 and have our athletes kind of back at it straight away. But, but biologically, these tissues need that time to adapt to those training loads. Yeah, that was a perfect walkthrough. Thank you for that. Uh, the one follow-up I have is the discretionary run that you mentioned. Is that one of the three weekly runs that you would, uh, I guess, have throughout the rehabilitation period? Or is it an added run so it makes it a fourth run per week? Uh, sorry. So I would, um, in in the most simple terms, I would have each each of those three runs per week would be identical, um, which which is pretty boring. And I and if and, and if my if I was worried that my patient was getting bored, I might vary it for their interest. But but the default would be to have those three runs each week being identical. So what they're then doing is once they're going into those discretionary runs, those three runs become discretionary rather than adding an additional discretionary run. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So so what you're saying is in terms of run frequency, basically as long as you're still considered a patient and possibly sometime after that even, you are doing three runs per week, no more. So you always get at least one day of rest between. 
each run. Correct. Yeah, correct. And I think the the time when I'm going to add an additional run is when volume has got to the point where there are pragmatic reasons to add in a fourth run. Um, so, you know, it might be that the volume has got so great that, that an individual either practically cannot run for that length of time um, or the long run has got too long or, or has reached the goal. And we simply need to introduce an additional run as a strategy to provide more volume. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So can you talk about some of the other things that we might be doing during this rehabilitation phase? Uh, for example, the resistance training and physiotherapy and uh, and exercises related to, to that and so on. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we've touched on a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff with resistance training. And I think the thing I'd say from a rehab perspective, there's just a couple of rules that we need to change slightly when you're in that rehab phase. And whereas I said uh, the compound exercises are the priority in terms of prevention and performance, um, I would prioritize with injury um, an isolated resistance training exercise first. So let's say you've had a hamstring injury. Um, I would be that the what we know is that we, we're not quite sure if it's cause or effect, but we know that there's an association between muscle weakness and an injury. So if you've got an injury, wherever that injury is, there'll be an associated weakness in the muscles around that area. So let's say, for example, you've had a hamstring injury, it's almost certain, and we'd corroborate this with, with our evaluation, we would anticipate that the hamstring muscles would be weak and that would become our priority. We would then expect that the muscles nearby and are functionally relevant, so adjacent muscles within the posterior chain, such as the hip extensors, glute max, or the plantar flexors, the calf muscles, they would probably be exercising muscles that we would look to strengthen in isolation as well during this first phase. Once I'm satisfied that those muscles are developing capacity, and as long as there's no other reasons not to, I'm looking to introduce those functional compound lifts as soon as possible. I think it's really important that they that they are integrated not too soon, but as soon as is as soon as is appropriate. And eventually, this segues beautifully into once once the strength in the hamstrings, to use this example, once we've got adequate strength in those hamstrings, we can remove that exercise and that strength will be maintained courtesy of those compound lifts. So if, if we then, so let's say when we've added functional exercises, I've added in uh, a deadlift or a hip thrust, for example, which are compound posterior chain exercises, I know that eventually I can get rid of that hamstring exercise, knowing that the strength will be maintained uh, and progressed by the incorporation of that compound exercise, such as its value, so kind of that's that's how I would re that's how I sort of manipulate resistance training in, in response to an injury, and and that and that's anywhere in the body. I know we've kind of we're focusing a little bit more on lower limb injuries because they're more common, but the same would be true for a shoulder injury um, or, or or a back injury as well. Back injuries perhaps a little bit more complicated, but um, but the essence the essence is there. Um, from the perspective of physio, um, and this is this is a really delicate subject. Certainly, when I was doing my undergraduate training, and even to a degree my postgraduate training, the the operating paradigm for physios was the application of a lot of passive modalities. So this might be 
uh, electrotherapy in the form of ultrasound, uh, tens, interferential, these kind of where you get where you get plugged into machines in some way, or it might be soft tissue therapies such as massage or, or joint manipulation. What we're beginning to understand is that whilst a lot of these interventions uh, provide temporary pain release, and some of them are very effective at providing temporary pain relief because they don't have any meaningful impact on the tissues themselves, their effect at actually mediating positive change in the tissues that are injured and uh, they their effect is actually quite negligible when it comes to recovery from the injury. And so the role of these passive therapies is probably quite limited for the majority of the types of injuries that we're talking about. Now, that's not to say that they don't have value and they don't feel nice and they can't be helpful, but certainly they shouldn't be the primary ingredient um, of management of any of the sorts of injuries that we're, that we're talking about. Um, I think um, some of the other things we've already touched on with regards to uh, nutrition and recovery uh, and recovery such as sleep, one of, one of the other things that I find quite interesting is, is, again, recovery is such an underrated modality both in terms of optimizing a training effect but also rehabilitation. And so any intervention that encourages um, an athlete to rest and put their feet up when they're not training or doing their exercises is something I'm happy to encourage. So I know a lot of people they they uh, who've asked me about the you know the recovery boots like your, your Normatec boots and, and other brands. Um, I'm not uh, aware of any strong evidence that they have a direct impact on tissue healing, and I don't think there's enormous plausibility that that they do. What they certainly do is they encourage you to spend 30 or 60 minutes um, recovering really well with your, with your feet up, and that's something that I would wholeheartedly endorse. Um, I think, um, and sort of the other thing that I wanted to, I guess, mention was that was the psychological aspect of injuries. Um, we, as triathletes, when we're training, you know, 10, 20, sometimes even 30 hours a week for, for some athletes, it becomes an enormous part of your personal identity. And when you have an injury, it's quite normal that there's this sense of loss as you lose what is an important part of your own personal identity. And so it's quite normal for there to be quite a lot of psychological distress that comes with that injury. Um, and I think it's really important that that is recognized, that that's appreciated and that's managed. Now, normally that can be managed perfectly adequately just by the delivery of a very clear management plan um, and, uh, and a diagnosis and, and a prognosis. I think once, once an athlete knows what's wrong with them, what they can do about that problem, and they've got a rough estimation of the time frame that they're looking at for their recovery, I think that allows athletes to psychologically take control of their problem and they can recalibrate their mindset that they're still an athlete but just a slightly different sort of athlete. And I think attending to that um, is a really important part of the rehab process. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so the last question that I want to to get into before the rapid fire questions uh, is uh, about physiotherapy in general. When do you recommend athletes should seek out a physiotherapist? Is that something that we should have 
in our support team whether we're injured or not and how, how often should we see them but also how do we know how do you find a good one how how can we know that we are finding somebody who will really be knowledgeable and, and help us yeah it's a good question so i think if we look at this like we have been throughout this conversation in terms of prevention and then in terms of rehabilitation i think having a a physio or equivalent in your team at all times is really valuable and the reason i think this is valuable and i've and i've kind of learned this myself as i've uh, you know as i've done more coaching over the last few years is that um as a coach and as an athlete we're inherently biased um, towards telling one another what we want, what we think we want them to hear. And so as an athlete, if you've got a niggle, you might be a bit reluctant to tell your coach that because you know that that may have consequences that you perceive as being negative. It might be that your training load is reduced or changed or modified in such a way, or maybe you just, you just, you've, you've got your head in the sand about that injury and, and that communication between coach and athlete, even at its best, even in when, when those communication uh, lines are really excellent, there is inherent bias there. And I think the introduction of someone who is independent but well-connected with the coach and with the athlete can be really, really good, um, can be a good sort of mediator between those. So if I as an athlete, if I'm checking in with my physio, you know, and maybe having uh, some massage or some manipulation or some dry needling done from time to time, time what's really important is i can have a conversation with that individual you know with with my physio or they can have that conversation with me and we can touch base and say you know how how are things going have you got any niggles anything that you need to tell me about um any stress any issues with your recovery and you can have this conversation in a really sort of collegiate way knowing that the athlete is in a safe place to divulge that information knowing that if that communication system is appropriately in place that the physio will then be able to filter that information and appropriately communicate with the coach so that the best decisions can be made in turn you know for the athlete's benefit and it might be to say hey look this athlete's got this little niggle i don't think it's anything to worry about i don't think any changes need to be made but just be aware that that it's been reported to and it could go further down the line to say hey look this athlete's got this niggle it's fine at the moment but it might be worth our while just uh you know reducing the intensity here or maybe there's some accumulating fatigue and maybe we need to have a have a reactive deload period or recovery week to just manage that fatigue and it can be done in a really collaborative way so i think i think that if you've got the resources to be able to do that then that represents the gold standard in terms of prevention but once you're injured or, or if you've got a niggle, um, I suppose the, the way I think about this, and, and certainly the people, you know, my recommendations would be when you should seek out an injury would be, you know, if you've got some type of pain and when you do your training, it exceeds that four out of 10 rule, you've probably got a legitimate problem. Now, my first course of action would typically be take two to three days of complete rest of loading that tissue and it's all and 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 more often than not and hopefully that problem will resolve with that added rest and recovery giving that tissue a chance to adapt but if that doesn't happen if you don't find that that recovery period allows that to have then that's the time that you might want to yell out for help 
Furthermore, if the idea of taking two or three days of complete rest is confronting for you because, say, you're in a really pivotal period of training uh, of your build for a, for a key race, then that might be the time to go sooner to see someone to just check whether or not there's anything more proactive that can be done. I think the other time where you'd go uh, very, uh, very quickly to see someone would be if that pain is significantly severe. And the things that should alert uh, an athlete to that pain being severe would be if you've got significant pain, i.e. greater than that 4 out of 10, at rest. I think most, when you've got high levels of pain at rest, it indicates that there's a strong inflammatory component present that probably indicates a significant injury or, or tissue event that needs to be attended to. Likewise, on the same tone, if you're being woken at night by your pain, that's another really good indicator that the pain that you experience probably is reflective of a significant injury. Um, and obviously, if you have other indicators of tissue pathology, you know, if the area is red, if it's swollen, or if you've had some sort of traumatic event, then you need to yell out for help uh, sooner, sooner rather than later. Um, so that would be when I would go and, you know, I'd consider going to get a professional opinion. And and then who you go and see, I think, is a really difficult one. Um most countries have professional bodies um, where where you can go on their websites and you can search for a physio, but often in my experience, those websites are a little bit clunky and they're often not up to date. So my suggestion would probably be a cautious internet search in, in your area. And the things that I'd probably be looking out for is because, of course, then you've got to filter through the kind of market, marketing jargon. And I think the thing that I'd be looking for is I'd be looking for clinics that are marketing themselves with expertise in your area. You know, for instance, our, our clinic is an example. We make it very clear that our expertise and our interest is in the endurance sports space. And we, and we do that. Uh, we do that so that we're matching our clinicians who have expertise there um, with, um, you know, with athletes that might need that attention. I think speaking back to the comment I made earlier about passive therapies is I would be nervous about clinics that are marketing themselves heavily around interventions that are largely passive in nature. Um, passive therapies do have a role, but I don't think they should be the key ingredient. We know that load management and, and resistance training, as we've discussed, is such a key ingredient that you'd be wanting um, you'd be wanting the physio that you're seeing to to be having that as uh, you know to be very skillful or to, or to have that in their toolbox. Um, and I guess the other thing that, that I think does have some value is for the clinicians to have a bit of skin in the game. I think to, I, I certainly feel that I'm probably a slightly better physio for knowing what it feels like to have an injury related to triathlon and also to know what it feels like to be you know, five weeks away from an Ironman and full of fatigue and feeling generally pretty miserable about the world. I think those things, you know, allow, you know, allow me as a clinician to have that little bit of extra empathy and understand sort of the concerns that the patient has and, and also understand how meaningful their sport is to them. Yeah, those were 
tons of great advice there and uh, yeah one one of those recommendations with uh, not falling for marketing jargon around passive uh, passive therapies was uh, a really great great insight and and quite eye-opening don't go to somebody just because they have all the latest machines and stuff because it might not be what you what you need yeah that's right so uh, there was one thing actually that i wanted to uh, to go back to a little bit and that was but i already forgot what it was so maybe it will come to me but it will move on to the rapid fire questions uh, and uh, see if it comes back and the first one of these you know them well being a listener of course but it's what's your favorite book blog or resource related to endurance sports yeah, it changes massively over time. Um, I think from a training perspective, I found uh, the the content that Alan Cousins writes on his website has been really, really informative uh, from a training perspective. Uh, and more recently, uh, as I've paid much more attention to to the strength and conditioning literature, there's a there's a podcast that your listeners may not be aware of, which is called Stronger by Science. Uh, and those guys are producing incredible material on their website and on their podcast that that relates to some really granular detail on how to apply strength and conditioning in a, in a bunch of different contexts. Um, and, and I think, but what I'm doing with all of my, all of this content is, is PubMed, which is, you know, where we get all of our, all of our primary research from. That's where I'm going to do all my fact checking from. And what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Oh, this is so hard. I think uh, most most recently, uh, my my favorite piece of gear is probably my protein supplements. I think uh, I've learned in recent times the importance of of supplementing with protein to meet those protein requirements. Uh, so, as I was thinking about my answer to that, I think I'm going to stump with that one for now to just go with something a little bit different. And uh, out of curiosity, do, what sort of protein supplement uh, are you using? Uh, so I use a, uh, a whey isolate. Uh, there's a there's a company, um, and, and 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 I think that the key thing that you should be looking for is that when you when you're looking for the protein per say 30 grams serving, you want the highest proportion of protein within that. So a minimum amount of fillers. Uh, there's a company here in Perth called R3 um, who are kind enough to supply me with my protein, and they're a, and, and I support them because uh, they're an Australian brand and and they're doing really good work locally, and I, and I love their product. Um, but uh, but I think quality of protein is is the most important thing. Yeah, I would agree. That's why I asked. So a way isolate with something like ninety yeah. percent protein. That's yeah, perfect. Uh, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, I've got to go with deadlifting. I think, uh, again, it's, it's something a little bit, is something a little bit different that I haven't heard anyone say before. And I, but, but I firmly believe that, uh, I reckon I'm, I'm, I'm yet to see, um, I'm yet to see an athlete or a patient that, uh, once you can deadlift a certain, uh, a certain weight, uh, you're, you're inches away from being bulletproof. Uh, and, and certainly since I've been, uh, religiously deadlifting, certainly my performance and my resilience is, has just gone up massively so so i'm going to stump with that one and, and what would be a target uh, a target weight relative to your body weight that you would uh, like to deadlift 
Yeah, so so we should probably we should probably caveat this with the fact uh, that that I'm certainly an endurance athlete. So my my friends that are that are that are real powerlifters will will laugh at me. Um, but I reckon as an endurance athlete, in all seriousness, if uh, you should be looking at deadlift your body weight um, as a as a minimum threshold or working towards that. Um, and I think that as I understand the data, if you can be getting up to one point five times your body weight, then you're ferociously strong as an endurance athlete. So I'd have those as my bookends if you can't deadlift your body weight you should be working towards that um and if you're getting above that and closer towards 1.5 then you you have more than enough uh, strength to be a, to be a really well protected endurance athlete yeah I, i've also worked with those exact numbers so yeah oh, cool uh, great and it uh, it came to me what the question that i forgot and that was something that i recommended uh, is to go and see a physio regardless of even if you're healthy at least once per year just as a checkup is that something that you agree with or have any thoughts about if we, let's say we can't have that gold standard uh, arrangement that you mentioned first but we can possibly go once per year would, would that be something that is good to do yeah, I, I guess two thoughts immediately spring to mind is I think that even if you don't have the capacity to catch up with a physio regularly in the manner that I described, I think doing so on an annual basis would, would be an excellent idea. But again, I think the relationship uh, the relationships are really important. So I, I, I would be prioritizing having that physio that you catch up with is someone who 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 has an existing relationship with both yourself and whoever else is on your coaching team if you do have a coach that would that would definitely add massive value to that so that would be a good thing the place i would be cautious of though is um and we haven't really spoken much about this is if you go if if, if you went to see any physio and you said I'm not going to tell you what's wrong with me. I want you to assess my biomechanics and my strength profile, and I want you to tell me what's wrong with me. Um, it would be very, very easy for a for a physio or another healthcare professional to find lots of abnormalities and lots of asymmetries that are perfectly normal for you, um, but are totally irrelevant and totally meaningless towards whether or not you're going to get injured or not. And there's a temptation as an athlete and there's a temptation as a clinician to say, oh, hey, James, you had this injury. You've got this imbalance here. We need to be spending a lot of time working on this. That may or may not be true. And you, and, and you do just run the risk of investing if, if you – if you go down that sort of confirmation bias route, you run the risk of over-investing in, uh, over in something that probably isn't necessary. So we just need to be cautious of of upselling uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to healthcare, which unfortunately does you know does still exist in you know as it does in every service industry. So we just need to be mindful that a lot of asymmetries, a lot of imbalances, are perfectly normal and perfectly natural. You know things like leg length leg length discrepancies and scoliosis, like a, a, a minor curve in the spine, they're absolutely normal and nothing to worry about. Um, and I think we need to be really careful of, of not becoming medicalized purely by virtue of talking to someone that can have a close look under the hood. So let's just be careful of that. Yeah, yeah, I got it. 
yeah, this uh, has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, James, for your time and expertise. Where can the listeners find out what you're up to, your research and uh, anything else that's uh, going on and uh, just uh, on the internet or social media? Yeah, so on social media, I kind of I, I have aspirations to be more active on social media than I am in reality. Uh, but on uh, I'm on Instagram. That's where I kind of post bits and pieces about uh, about about my training and a, and, a, and a little bit about about the coaching that I do. And that's uh, if you just uh, I'm James Debenham. Um, on Twitter, that's where I do, that's where I spend a lot of time, uh, in my kind of professional space. And if anyone's interested in, uh, I suppose in, in learning more about the things that we've been talking about, then, then my Twitter feed, uh, is very kind of closely linked to the people whose opinions I value. Uh, and so I'm Debenham underscore James, uh, on Twitter, um, and from a clinical perspective, uh, and a lot of my research is archived here, is at the clinic where I work uh, here in Perth, which is uh, staffphysiowa.com.au. And actually, the uh, the practice principal um, is really proactive on that website, puts lots of blogs up, and there's even a few videos of, of me and some of my colleagues having given presentations in the past. So there's there's some quite nice content there, and I have aspirations to to update that with a few more blogs in uh, in due course. But that's that's probably probably the best place to find me and I, I love it love it when people reach out to me for whatever reason thank you so much james it's been a pleasure and uh, all the best until next time thanks michael i hope that you like me found that episode really really useful and interesting i'm still a bubbling of enthusiasm from talking to james earlier today he was really a lot of new knowledge and i'm excited to have got to talk to james about all of these topics some key takeaways obviously it's impossible to summarize an episode like this in just a few quick sentences but I think some topics that uh, it would be worth going back and re-listening to are the parts about uh, tissue loading in the first place and the biology of tissue loading. For example, the fact that uh, tissue weakens immediately after uh, exposure to a high load. So, for example, 24 hours after a hard workout, the injury risk is significantly increased because of that weakened, temporarily weakened tissue. A second part that I will re-listen to is the rehabilitation progression and return to training. Remember here that some pain is okay. You can train even if your pain is at a 4 out of 10 level. If it's any more than that, that's too much, but 4 out of 10 is okay. And uh, go and listen to the example James gave for returning to training from a running injury. In this example, he was working with 3 runs per week, starting as very short walk runs and pay attention to that walk runs not run walks and then the final takeaway or really interesting nugget here that i want to remind you of as we wrap up this episode is the importance of lifestyle factors like sleep and nutrition and in this context we're talking specifically about protein and getting enough protein which can be a big challenge and endurance athletes quite often do not get enough protein so pay attention to that you can find all of the show notes as usual on thattriathlonshow.com. And I'll also link to a couple of related episodes, including episode number 45 with James Dunn and episode 114 with Nate Koch. 
Uh, although I have to say that this particular episode was uh, definitely the most comprehensive episode we've had on the topic of injury and uh, injury rehabilitation. On Thursday, we have another Q&A coming out and next Monday, as usual, another interview. And that interview is with coach Andrew Simmons and it will be on altitude, including altitude training camps as well as racing at altitude if you are typically training closer to sea level. So anything and everything related to altitude will be covered in that episode, which is going to be another really, really good one. If you enjoy the type of information you get from this podcast, make sure that you check out the website scientificdraftlon.com as well. We have a range of products and services there that might be of interest to you, everything from ready-made training plans to top-class individual coaching. Before we go, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free sweat test and get a free hydration plan and use the promo code DEATHTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, to try a box or tube of Electrolyte products for free. And thank you to Roka for sponsoring the podcast. You can find them on roka.com and you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving fat. <laughs>